Hi everyone, welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you've come via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, just head on over to officehours.global. That's kind of our primary web portal for more information and links about the show. In our second hour, we're excited today because David C. Smith of Plate Pros will be joining us. Plate Pros specialize in shooting the background action, typically projected a green screen behind actors in many of today's most popular TV shows and movies. It's another day we're going to be seeing some amazingly sophisticated shooting rigs. So if you're into that kind of stuff, this is your day. That's today's second hour. Uh, but this is the first hour. So Mitch, what have we got to start with today in terms of questions? Thank you, Bill. Uh, starting us off is Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. In the movie I just saw on Netflix, they had something called a splinter crew in the credits. Just what is a splinter crew? Courtney Gooden, our Hollywood longtime pro, will explain it to us. Courtney? Well, it's a crew that goes out and photographs just splinters. Get them in your finger. No, we, it's it's what we used to call second unit, but now because of production schedules, a lot of times, uh, especially on TV shows, they will double up and have two separate crews shooting at the same time on different stages or one perhaps going out on location. They'll use some of the uh, primary actors will be in each crew, the primary crew and the splinter crew, but they'll get a... Uh, a second director to direct the uh, scenes that are taking place in the splattered crew. Usually they're less important scenes. Um, you know, they'll be the thing where the actors have to go out, get in their car and drive off, that kind of stuff. Uh, more second unit stuff than not. Uh, and sometimes uh, if, if the production can uh, is so organized, if they have multiple sets, they'll actually shoot on different sets in at the studio at the same time with the splinter crew. So it allows them to shoot twice as much in half the time. Ooh, that's very efficient for movies, which is a very expensive business. Mitch Hill, you wanted to add some stuff? Courtney, what's the difference between splitter and a B crew or B camera crew? B camera is on the primary set, um, shooting the primary talent in the scene at the same time from a different angle. Splinter crew is on a different set with different actors. So uh, splinter crews shooting, usually sometimes they'll shuttle actors between the uh, A crew and the splinter crew, primary crew and the splinter crew. Uh, but uh, if they're you know close, close enough together, if they're on the same lot or on the same soundstage, they'll shuttle them back and forth, but they have to make sure that they don't clash. But it's different scenes usually. So is that that's this kind of the modern nomenclature for what used to be called the second unit? I think you mentioned. Yeah, that second unit. You know, second unit. A lot of times is called pickups or second unit, and they'll shoot the inserts or the cutaway or an insert crew, where you know somebody's dealing with something, and they'll have a hand model do you know getting their wallet out and taking their a close up of taking their driver's license out of the wallet or something for a cutaway. You know, so all the cutaways and close ups used to be a second unit or or a insert crew. Uh, but now Splinter Crew, they're actually shooting dialogue scenes. So they have a full crew, including a, a second DP, gaffer, sound crew, the whole a whole full crew, but in another location on the same day. Nice. Uh, Alex, you had some notes. And a lot of times the, what's really interesting is that we use a lot of body doubles for those as well. So um, so one of the things that we, we've done is we'll have like if you're doing an over the shoulder, we, we did one in Japan where we were doing over the shoulder. We needed the, we needed the neighborhood when they opened the door. And you're only going to see the actor. So we took the actress and we had her 
her double stand there, and we basically shot over that thing. The next shot is interior, but that's on a soundstage. <laughs> so, so that happened on a soundstage. We just needed that one, ins- you know, you know, establishing shot uh, over her shoulder of the actor as he op- as they open the door. And um, and so those a lot of times when you talk about second unit or splinter crews, you end up with these, um, you know, these inserts. You're using other people's hands, other people's. Uh, you know, various parts of their body, um, you know, to be grabbing onto things or over their shoulder is really popular. Um, and, uh, and it's just, it's a, especially on a lower budget film, it's, it's much better when you have limited time with your, your key actors. And, oh, Courtney has one last thought before we move on. Courtney? Just an anecdote on, on uh, I would work a lot of times with the uh, Splinter Group on uh, Dexter because we would shoot all the computer screens, which I was in charge of, the close-ups, you know, we'd have Dexter would be playing with his computer and we'd come back later to shoot all the inserts of all the stuff that he was looking at. And we called it the Bowfinger crew because we'd run around and grab stuff uh, without people's knowledge and sometimes without permits on the street. If you know the, if you <laughs> we know call the that, movie, we call Bowfinger. Stealing. Yeah, right. Stealing, stealing yes. shots. Yes. <laughs> Gun gorilla on us. Nice. All right. Well, as you could see there, we spent some time on that because it was highly voted. So your votes always do count. Excellent. Let's move on to the next one. It's for Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand. How would one try and describe office hours and after hours to a peer with similar interests that has not heard of us or our community? Throwing this into our community leader, Alex. I mean, I mostly just say you should you should watch it and see if it if it's something that you're interested in. <laughs> it's really hard to describe. Um, you know, oftentimes when I talk to folks about it, I um, I explain it's problem. It's one of the larger user groups that meets every single day um, in the world, and it's kind of a global a global user group um, interested in media production. But that's usually how I describe it. Also, real quick uh, reminder that you can test our new non-login version of asking questions. Uh, if you go to askofficehours.com or use the QR code that you can see on my screen, um, you can actually just push in questions and then uh, we can take the take them and push them into, into Makana. Uh, so if you want to test that, go ahead and ask a question for this morning uh, using that. But um, you can you can just, uh, that's a real quick and easy way to to ask questions. Alex, does it allow for the tags that we use to determine first nope. hour and second hour questions? So it this is form. just for kind and, of, and it's really yeah. for the first hour. And we're working on, I mean, we just started using this a day or two ago. <laughs> so, so, but the thing to know is if you're watching this later and you have a question that you'd like to show up, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can still use this URL. It's open 24 seven. So um, this URL ask first hour questions, not necessarily second hour questions yet. Um, and, uh, but, and we're working on tags and so on and so forth, but this is just us starting to test this process. Um, I'm very much of the, I'm very much in the ilk of the, the agile <laughs> develop, uh, developer, which is we'll throw something up as soon as we have something working. Now, this is part of the commercial use of how we use the program. Um, and so we're tying it together with what we do here um, as a test. So, um, so it's still a little, little rough around the edges, but we'd love to see how people use it and let us know in Discord, in the Makana section, how it's working for you. Excellent. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, L Acoustics is positioning the LISA platform as a scalable, immersive platform for studio and live use. Could you see artists directly transposing their immersive studio mixes into a live environment, especially for electronic-oriented genres? Alex, we've already done a fair bit of this, and and you know it is a. Uh, I, I don't know if you. Um, it's you know we we do it. We don't need to use L Acoustics for, for for that or Elisa, but uh, Elisa is a really cool tool, and where we do have it in our mix. Um, uh, but the uh, you know I, I think that 
it just it, for our live feeds of, of managing those things, it works really well. If you're starting to use them in a um, uh, in, in a variety of other environments, I mean, there's a lot of tools to use that you can do immersive with. Um, but uh, but Elisa is something that we have in our mix, and um, we are definitely uh, playing with how to how to use it for some of the shows that we're working on. Let's move to the next question. And next one in from Dave Kaufman in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. John Warnock, the co-founder of Adobe, passed away last week. What impact did John have on video production? Courtney. I'm not sure what uh, uh, impact he had. Um, Premiere and then later Premiere Pro had a pretty good impact. I think CNN was one of the first to use it uh, as a nonlinear editing system for editing news footage. Um, they uh, Adobe actually picked up... Um, Premiere, I think, came from real time on the Mac. Uh, uh, what was the guy's name? Ublios. Yeah, it was the guy who wrote it. They acquired it and turned it into Adobe Premiere and then Premiere Pro. And it was uh, highly competitive with uh, Avid, Avid's first systems out there uh, in competing in the nonlinear, in nonlinear workflow. And it was a lot cheaper entry than uh, using the Avid. So it 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 had a, a lot of entry level people in and a lot of news organizations and TV stations. It impacted them greatly. Yeah, Andy, uh, um, Randy Ubilos. I managed to chat with him once, and it was really interesting to hearing him talk about. He really just sat down to write something before there was much out there other than Avid, and as an individual, uh, kind of created the original premiere. Mitch, you had a thought. Yeah, one thing to say about John uh, at Adobe, I think they sort of fashioned themselves as a uh, creative uh, version of Microsoft because they they were able to secure up-and-coming programs and modify them and make them uh, Adobe-specific. I mean, anybody that had PageMaker, for example, uh, remembers that was uh, uh, one of the early uh, versions from Aldis. I had a program called COSA, which I was learning back in the day, and that turned into After Effects. So uh, they were able to recognize, I think, up-and-coming uh, potential programs. And then now uh, all the Adobe stuff is, uh, is sort of integrated and uh, works well together. Yeah, I think one also the things that John Warnock did was strike all those deals with the type foundries to license actual typefaces, and that became a huge deal for the beginnings of desktop publishing to have access to many, many really high-quality fonts in your electronic documents. Alex? Yeah, I think that the vision that that Warnock had... um, really built our industry like you know so you know uh, you know when when the Knoll brothers went to Aldis they were like I don't know what to do with this and Adobe was very quick to say yeah we know exactly what to do with this and then Adobe ended up buying Aldis <laughs> for missing that one um, but the vision of, of between purchasing uh, COSA uh, uh, you know picking up Photoshop all of those things you you think that those things were bound to happen but you just don't know sometimes it takes the vision of a person or a group of a small group of people to make decisions that impact us and maybe it would have happened eventually something like photoshop but the fact that it happened when it happened it, it could have been delayed by another decade or two and you if you try to think about what what that would have meant um to have something there and there were key things that that the that specifically photoshop had for instance that other other apps didn't and that's plugins. Um, and that was so that one person could work on the core um, app and others could work on, you know, and mostly John Knoll could write things that he needed specifically in a short in short form uh, for visual effects. And but that 
built, grew up into an industry and made Photoshop something that, and created something that just hadn't existed before. Um, and so, um, but these things, that kind of thing, along with the kind of things that we saw in After Effects, the, you know, again, PageMaker, all of these things uh, were something that Adobe had a vision, uh, Warnock had a vision, and he took that, that early uh, success and leveraged it into just an incredible, incredible company that really formed a lot of what we've done over the last uh, 30 years. Let's go to the next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Now with Duet, you can use Google's AI to make spreadsheets, whip up slide decks, and summarize all those documents you were never going to actually read. For $30 a month, is it worth it? What say you, John Preto? So these next two questions that Paul have here all are announcements that Google made. Google Cloud Next is going on as we speak. It started on Tuesday. Their keynote was Tuesday. These are all in response to, to Microsoft's announcement in January that they were integrating AI into all of their applications, Office, et cetera. So they showed the integration into workplace. So AI in every one of the Google applications. And what's interesting is they're reusing the Duet uh, trademark because that, that used to be a video conferencing product, right? So they're now using Duet as Microsoft uses the Copilot as the as a term for for AI because it's not as scary. But all these announcements were made this week at Google Next Cloud. Courtney Gooden. Yeah, I worry about the accuracy of this AI, especially in using it in spreadsheet documents or summarization of uh, financial docs. Because I asked it, uh, I asked uh, one of them live here about uh, me, and it got uh, everything wrong. They got everything right except for my name, and it somehow uh, and and it it cites the references that it used as a little uh, subtext that, that where it got its information from. You go go to the uh, where it got its information from. It's right in where it got its information from, but it just changed it on the way in. And I did the same thing with Bard because uh, they I signed up for Bard with their announcement uh, two days ago and tried it and uh, about a piece of software that I wrote back in the 80s and it had got it right. It got it right about uh, what it did, what it was capable of, the year it was released, who distributed it. But it said it ran on the Apple computer and it never ran on the Apple computer. It was written for the Atari and where it came up with the Apple too, I don't know. Interesting. Chris Fenwick. Oh, I'm sorry. Are you done, Cordy? Yeah. Okay. Chris Fenwick. Yeah, this is just about the summarize thing. You know, Apple's been doing this for almost 20 years, I think, maybe longer. There's a there's a system uh, service called Summarize that you can turn on if you're a Mac user. Um, if you've never uh, if you've never looked into it, you should definitely look into it. Um, it's really amazing, and the best way to test it is to take something that you've written. Basically, what you do is you just paste a bunch of text into it, and then there's a little slider, and you just go, oh, I apologize. Why did my picture go away? Well, we see a logo there I, of... Uh, I would just like to underline why I don't use software editing tools in, as, a, as an in-between for the cameras. <laughs> like I just, you know, I just, you know, every once in a while, this is a, like a little, little... Uh, I'm sorry. But Did that knock Chris entirely out of the panel? Let, yes. let me know. Oh, let yes. me know when you're done having fun. Okay. <laughs> this is this is when people ask, "Why don't you use this? Why can't you modernize your workflow?" And I go, "You you could you could modernize your <laughs> workflow." I was actually trying to, yeah, yeah, whatever. Chris, you is win. Back. 
you win. I'm good. But <laughs> Max Summarize service uh, is very easy to find. It, 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 it's easy to find how to turn it on. It's actually hard to turn it on. Um, but it's it's been there for 20 years. And it summarizes text quite well. All right. Let's OBS. go to the next question. And moving on to Chad Lafarge in Columbia, Missouri, with X, the product formerly known as Twitter, having announced that video calls are coming soon. How long before we'll see remote contribution via X? Jeffrey Powers, it's speculation time. Well, first of all, if you want to use X, you're going to have to get uh, uh, X Blue or X Pro or X whatever it's called uh, account. So you're going to have to pay for it. And I've, I'm really starting to think that they're going to start thinking about tiered payments. So you'll have like four different levels, and one of those levels you'll actually get the uh, the phone, the video calling option on there. Um, I think that it's you know it's something that's been long overdue for then Twitter now X. Um, so, but uh, it, I, I'm I'm also thinking it's too little, too late. Chris Mike. I'd like to point out that about six months ago, I said uh, that Elon is evolving X, then then Twitter, into a banking tool. And anything that you can do that's fun and sexy to do that involves a little bit of money just means that you have decided to trust Elon with your credit card. So if you have the blue check mark, you've already decided that you trust that company with your credit card. This is going to be a banking tool bigger than anything else. Interesting. That's guess that a lot to think about there. Next question. Over to Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. AI is coming to meet you. Your AI avatar can attend meetings in your place, take notes, etc. And Meet is also adding a teleprompter. Are they making a move to catch up with Zoom? Jeffrey Powers, what do you think? Um, I don't know if it's catching up with Zoom or more as showing you that you can do something and not be there. I, the virtual aspect of things, people are getting weary of it and, and being, uh, I'm reminded of that scene from Real Genius where Mitch comes into the hall and the first time it, it, there's people in there uh, and then the professor is talking and then the next time it's a bunch of recorders and then the final time everything's a recorder, including the professor. And I don't think I'd want to walk into a room if nobody's there. And especially with AI uh, playing the game, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of great advances with AI. Like, for instance, there's an app, you know, I could be reading a script off of this monitor and my eyes could be shifting over here so I could be looking looking at the screen, but how genuine would that actually start to look and how genuine would it be if you walked into a meeting and found that 15 attendees, uh, maybe one of those 15 attendees actually attended? Mitch? I'm trying to figure out, is, is this trying to make you fake you into thinking that that person is actually there or it's an obvious AI avatar? And if it is, Maybe there's a, a business for creating a uh, an app that flags them and perhaps embarrasses them for coming on as an avatar instead of a real person. Alex Lindsay. Yeah, I mean, everybody's trying to catch up with Zoom. 
<laughs> you know, so Zoom's way out ahead, uh, and everyone sees that as an opportunity. I also see it as a liability that they're not closer to where, where Zoom is. Um, this is why I feel it's very important that Zoom continues to really pay attention to moving forward because you're going to see a lot of innovation across all of these platforms trying to uh, close the distance from where they are to where Zoom is and try to do it in, in innovative ways. And so I think that you're going to, Google is one of those, and um, you know, they really missed the boat. Um, they basically underdeveloped their product for about five years. Um, and when they closed up Hangouts on Air, decided they were going to do that, they basically stripped all of the useful tools out of out of Hangouts um, and ended up with Meet. And it just it probably cost them billions during the co- during COVID um, to not have those all those tools. And so it was just a really I think that they know that they really. They really screwed that one up. And so because they were way ahead of everybody else for quite some time. Um, and so they're, they're playing catch up. Everyone's playing catch up to Zoom. But um, this is just a warning that Zoom, Zoom has to keep on really. Um, and they have the right team to do that, but they have to keep on innovating. Cordy Gooden. Yeah, I haven't been able to read the whole article. I'm not sure I understand the parts. If it's going to substitute an AI avatar for you, why would you need a teleprompter? AIs don't need to read off the screen. I don't get it. Jeffrey Powers. I will say that if they're poising for podcasters to come on and start uh, creating content that way, then these tools are going to be very useful for creating descriptions, creating titles, uh, being able to uh, just uh, do the basic things because a lot of these podcasts are just basically screen grabs of the Zoom call or the meet call or whatever, which is kind of frustrating in itself. Uh, so if it kind of looks a little bit like they're, they're paying attention and, and you get the, the show out to the masses within minutes of recording, then that's going to help a lot. This is my opportunity to say thank you for all the questions we've had so far. You've been great as always. There is room for more questions. So if you have questions, pop them into the Mukana interface. And as always, everybody who's watching has a chance to vote those questions up and down. The questions that achieve the most votes are the ones we get to fastest. And typically we spend the more time, spend the the largest amount of time discussing on the show. So your votes do matter. Let's go on to the next question. Dot App from Austin, Texas asks, is there anything like office hours for yoga or Nia classes? Alex. That's the dream. <laughs> so so that's the dream. You, you know, basically uh, the goal really is, is that office hours could be something that is available to everyone to do use, whether it's gardening or yoga or exercise or, or I don't know what their favorite band uh, or bands or guitars or whatever they, whatever they're interested in. The, the reason, one of the reasons it was important to start with our community was because we, uh, you know, we already understand how to do the video part. Um, if you had given a bunch of gardeners and said, hey, let's all get together, they'd still be using their iPhones, you know, for most of them. So so the goal is really to, you know, fi- we're figuring this out, we're building this up, but I think that there is definitely an opportunity for anything that people are interested in, in building kind of a, a cohort of, of people that would be interested in talking about this and answering people's questions. And so, you know, we're going to be experimenting more with that later this year. Courtney? Well, hasn't Peloton been doing this for years with an instructor that comes in over the network and you have all your uh, peddlers out there peddling along on their Pelotons uh, participating in their exercise course and he's yelling at them over over the internet. And I guess they could answer questions then as they huff and puff and try and make their way up that hill, but uh, they could add a little more interactivity to it. That might be interesting. (laughs) 
you know, I, I think there's, you know, there's the kind of the broadcast of one to many. I think the thing that we're working, we're kind of perfecting here is, is a group of people being able to answer the questions. It's much, you know, you especially see it when we have, you know, as when we have, uh, you know, certain, when we have a large group of people in a panel, like we figured out how to absorb that. That's chaos for any other platform. Um, and so the, the, the opportunity to learn, it's not so much doing it together. I mean, you could do yoga together, but there's a lot around yoga. You know, there's like lots of different versions of it and talking about, well, how does this work and why does this make a difference? And there's a lot of discussion that can happen there that, that could be a little check-in. I don't know if I do it. I wouldn't recommend anybody do it every day <laughs> like we do. Uh, we've iterated very quickly, but I wouldn't recommend going down that path if I started. But a weekly yoga discussion, I have my sister-in-law's yoga instructor. She does therapeutic yoga. So it's really about repairing things and so on and so forth. And there is a lot of theory that goes along with it. So I, I don't think you would necessarily be trying to exercise together as much as it is between those exercises, talking about the technique and, and why, why that, why that is not necessary, you know? So, you know, like a lot of people can go in and weightlift, but understanding your rest periods, your nutrition, your, um, you know, your technique, your, you know, all those other things are, are super important, um, to being successful. And so there's a lot of places in anything that we do, um, to, to have a discussion about it with experts. So if you can get a group of experts willing to come together and people that are, that are interested in asking questions, there's an opportunity to build something that looks like office hours. You'll know we've turned the corner when you see office hours for pickleball. Just saying. All right, next question. No. Uh, it's Dave Kaufman from Vancouver, <laughs> British Columbia. When I point my iPhone camera at the Office Hours QR code on Alex, the preview says askofficehours.com. Why is it so hard for other folks to have a real URL instead of things like qr.code? Alex, you study this a good little bit. I build a lot of QR codes. And one of the things I found is that people have trouble sometimes with their QR codes. Um, the QR code itself um, generates... Uh, it it's about three times more effective than the URL. So if I put a, if I just put that URL up, I have one third the amount of impact typically from the stuff that we've done in the past. Then if I have the QR code, it's like a big logo that says, hey, you can do it. And it does for most phones, especially iPhone users, uh, Android is now catching up, but it was a little harder with Android users for a while. It just is so easy. They just point their camera at it, hit it, and they're in. But what I do is for every project that I work on, I build a shortened URL that I put underneath it. That way they can type it and I try to make it something easy for them to, to know. The reason that people don't, other people don't do what I do, I mean, and I, I register, probably do a registration every, every couple of days. <laughs> to tell you, to be, being like for, for this kind of thing and I, seven bucks or 30 bucks or 10 bucks for the budgets of what I'm doing, it doesn't really matter. Like it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a nothing number, you know, for me. And so, um, so anyway, by, so I register these and it takes us minutes to tie Makana now into these. And so it's very easy for us to put those together. The, um, uh, the reason other people don't do it is A, they build, they, they want to track everything. I'm not trying to track things. I'm just trying to get people, I'm trying to reduce friction to ask a question and I want to reduce it both with the URL as well as the QR code. Um, I'm not trying to, I'm not, I'm not trying to do all the back end. Like, how do I figure out how many people came from here and what they did here? I don't care about that. I just want them to be able to ask the questions. And we're very effective by not, by reducing that, that friction, um, of getting enormous. Amount. We had a, an event we did, uh, a couple of days ago that, the impact was 10% of the, of the audience, which is, I, I don't know if, if you guys know numbers, but 10% of an audience actually asking a thoughtful question is insanely high, you know? And so, so those are the kind of things that, um, uh, you know, uh, 
that's the kind of thing you can get when you mix these two things together. Um, anyway, so so I think that that's important. The QR codes, oftentimes those URLs are also driven by QR generators uh, on the web. You should never use those. I've used them in the past and paid the price. Um, you should never, ever, ever build your QR code on a website. You can get, you can, there are scripts that will do it inside of Windows and the Mac. There's like a terminal script that will build it. If you want a little more creative control on the Mac, I use a thing called QR Factory, which gives me just a lot of little you know, size, redundancy, I can put the logo in the center, like you can see on this one. You know, there's a lot of little things that I can do with those, um, with that, that makes it a little nicer. So uh, the creature comforts come with the apps, but you should never, because the problem when you use a URL is you never really can trust it. And what you, you have to be very careful of is that they may be routing you through the web page. So if you're not paying your subscription, you stop paying your subscription, you end up with a dead end or worse, end up at their website. And when you're working with clients, that's a bad look. <laughs> you know, so so that's why we um, that's why I use the QR codes and I build my own with my own software. Um, and then the again the, the I put a URL in just in case that's like the backup to the QR code. Um, and it's been you know as I've gotten better at it, it's been really effective. Courtney. Yeah, I think uh, there are a couple of things that um, uh, I, th I like Alex's method of using it easily, easily memorable a shortcut underneath the QR code because your brain cannot remember what the QR code looked like. And it's transitory. You know, a lot of times you'll be watching TV and they'll say, our special offer is only on for the next 24 hours. Just follow the QR code. They'll put the QR code up for like 10 seconds. And by the time you find a phone to take a picture of it, it's gone. So if they'd had a memorable uh, URL underneath it, uh, you could easily remember that and go to it. So that's what I hate about QR codes, especially on television programs where they throw it up and they're doing that more and more right now. And you'll see it in the news sometimes, you know, to, to donate to this cause, you know, Here's the and they don't leave it up long enough. The, yeah, the, they the, leave it up like 15 sure. seconds, and you know you're still looking for your phone at 15 seconds. I know it's 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 the the QR code usage is really bad, and and I keep I keep when I'm flashing QR codes during things, I, I tend to keep them up for minutes. Uh, sometimes the whole show, sometimes, you know, like anytime I can keep, you know, we put them up, but we usually consider 60 to 90 seconds the minimum to give people time to do something with it. And Alex is uh, uh uh, screens that are OLED will soon be on sale with a little QR code burned into the corner. <laughs> you know, it turns out you, you, we we do we do uh, turn them off specifically because of that, and we use them in places that we can cut away. So oftentimes they're you know to your point, um, you know, and usually for the screens that I put them up on, we're not worried about LEDs. <laughs> Mitch Hill, I think the the fact that QR codes are getting to the point where it instantly says something to download. Um, you don't have to read something or anything else. You just know that there's an opportunity to download something, and that's important. The other part is I agree with what Courtney and Alex were saying. The idea that uh, you're going through another uh, organization to generate your QR code and they own the URL it goes to means that you might get a, it might be free, but you might get a phone call six months later saying, hey, by the way, that QR code uh, link is now going to cost you X dollars to uh, to have it. So. That is uh, that is an issue, especially if you have a client that's asking, what's going on here? And I did want to uh, do a shout out to Alex for doing a great job of placing the Office Hours logo in the center. That's well done. There you go. Next question. Next one in from David Brady, New York, New York. Using the Zoom Rooms product in a multi-purpose room, can't find the setting switch for original sound, etc., either in the controller or on the back end. Am I missing something somewhere? I believe you are, Alex. Help him out. Yeah, I don't think that um, 
I don't think that you can do that uh, with, uh, you know, directly. There's not an original sound setting. I think there's individual settings. So you, you have to uh, find the individual settings that you want to adjust, but there's, you have to look at the manual. There's a Zoom Rooms audio guidelines, but I think that it's individual man, uh, individual settings, but not a, a, an overall original sound. And the reality is, is that original sound is not an overall one. It still leaves some things on and off, which have been problematic for us. <laughs> like we just want to say, I want a button that says, turn everything off. And we, ha- we, we don't have that uh, in, in uh, any case. All right. Next question. And it's another question coming in from the QR code from Robert Barrow in Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania. Great QR code. A question for photographers. What camera bag works for you and why that particular bag? Ooh, this is going to be one of those semi-religious questions. Alex, Lindsay, what is your preference? I have enjoyed Think Tank. Uh, Think Tank has a lot of really good ones, and I've used a, a fair number of them to do that. But and uh, Domkey is another one that I like. I like the Domkey ones because they're a little lower profile, so they don't tend to look like a photo. They tend to look like a regular bag, and they look a little beat up. I like I like my bags to look beat up when I'm traveling, so they don't quite advertise as much. This is a big photo bag, uh, so I, I use that. I have found that I've generally leaned into a more generalized. Uh, I use a Rush 24. I've, I've been using Rush 24 bags for, these are f- tactical 511 Rush 24 bags. Those are standard issue at Pixelcore. Uh, we just gave it like, welcome to Pixelcore. Here's your bag. <laughs> you know, And so so that that's the one we use. A lot of pockets. Uh, it's a big open area in the center. And then I'd figure out how I would subdivide that if needed for photography. It's not a, it's not a true photo bag, uh, but I'd use that in com- combination. Typically, what I travel with is that in a fifteen ten. Um, so a fifteen ten Pelican case and the Tactical five eleven um, Rush twenty four were just how I've traveled for the last decade. Jeffrey Powers. Yeah, I totally agree on the Pelican case. I use a Case Logic for my bag, and uh, the best part, two two great parts about that. One is, if you lay it flat, you can zipper it open, you open it up, and they see what's inside. It's perfect for a TSA situation. But the other thing is all that Velcro that you can move around. Because sometimes I'm taking just one camera, and I don't need to have all those little compartments, and and uh, I, I need to bring in more than one uh, one laptop, and so I can actually uh, move that around and bring that around. And of course, the same thing with the Pelican case. You get one of the inserts with the uh, with the fabric and the vel- Velcro, so you can make your own uh, your own pockets and compartments off of there. So you can put in bigger cameras, smaller cameras, or multiple cameras for that matter. Courtney Gooden. I've always liked uh, Porta Brace bags. Uh, they have these ones that are for designed for camcorders for about eighty nine bucks at Arama. And um, although these days, when you're putting together, you know, when you're rigging, even if you've got a DSLR camera and you're going to rig it for video shooting, you put it together on a base plate with a, you know, with a cage on it, and you know, V mount batteries in the back and a uh, monitor on the top and you get it together. It's the size of an old, uh, a good size camcorder. So they fit good in these old camcorder bags, uh, which you can get for a little, you know, for a price, a uh, pretty cheap price. The only problem with it, uh, everyone knows that Porta Brace houses expensive cameras, so they tend to be stolen a lot, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah, that stealthy thing is important. I've used almost every one that has been mentioned now, and they're all really great. The, interestingly enough, when Jeffrey mentioned Case Logic, the reason I still to this day use a Case Logic backpack is because the interior of it is this incredibly bright yellow, and it just makes it really easy to find the small things that might be hidden in a corner in the Dom key and, uh, and think tank bags. They usually don't have as much contrast, so I like that about that. But they all have absolutely great features. Alex, you wanted to come back and make another note? Um, trackers. <laughs> Put trackers in the Oh, bag. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so at least at least one. <laughs> yeah, so, so anyway, because yeah. the, the notification usually comes up and says you, you're being tracked, doesn't say how many. So um, the, uh, uh, but I would, I would, uh, trackers are a good thing in all your I, bags. Those air tags. Right. It, it is, the air tags have changed everything for me. I put them everywhere. I've got, I don't know how many of them. And it's full, every time I leave the office, it says, you left eight things behind. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but, but it's, uh, but it, you know, but trying to figure out what happened to something is much simpler now nowadays. And if someone runs off with it, um, you know, they, they, it takes them a little time to figure out. If someone ran off with it and you saw it, you know, it takes them a little time to figure out where that is in the bag. Um, and in that stoppage is a good opportunity for you. So. Yeah, I wish they would do something about that little left behind thing because I go out to walk almost every day. And when I go out it, about three I, blocks away, it's like, you've left this behind. You've left this behind. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard because you get so many alerts. You know, my I left my iPad behind. I left my computer behind. I left AirTags behind. It's like constantly telling you you left something behind. And I'm like, I don't. You can turn that down. There's a way to set that. But I'm afraid of setting it down because there have been a couple of times where it tells me that I've walked away from something and I actually forgot it. Absolutely. You know, and Nigel, you had a thought? Yeah, I was just going to say you can mark certain locations like I have home marked as something not to remind me that I've left it at. So if you mark them as those things. That makes sense. All right, let's go to the next question. From Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia, still very happy with the Shoot Pro app and the 10s Max iPhone as my webcam. But what is suggested next step for me in the low budget area? Um, Mitch Hill, start us off. Yeah, I mean, we talk about a lot of different cameras here. Uh, the uh, the the Obsbot uh, Tail Two, uh, the Insta Three Hundred and Sixty. Um, those are probably a good place to go. But at some point, I think you're going to end up going into a DSLR camera, and uh, we're going to bring it up. Um, this is the Sony uh, ZV-E10. Uh, it's been out for about a uh, year and a half, and you might be able to get B-stock on it or refurbs. So uh, I think that's a good place to go if you're going to go DSLR. Alex, yeah, the uh, uh, you also could look at lighting, you know. So I think that the, the where I would go to improve my camera before I spent more money on cameras would be lighting. And really, what you're looking for is large, soft sources. And so what I have here, for instance, is I've got a three foot by five foot that, and this soft box that I built cost about. $40. <laughs> so it's, it's not, it wasn't particularly expensive. Uh, it's got lights behind it um, that cost more, but, but you can, there's a lot of, it, you can make a lot of cheaper lights much nicer by having a large source in front of them. So think about that as far as if you have some cheaper lights, building a big box that kind of gets framed. I'm using um, the uh, maker pipe and EMT rails to, to put that together. And that's been a really cost-effective way. It doesn't look particularly nice. I, I mean, it's a little like twine holding it together. I, I keep on meaning to rebuild it, but it works great. It was a test, and then I was like, eh, works great, and then I ran out of time. Nigel. 
Yeah, and when you're ready to go the DSLR route, think about finding your local camera store who may have a lot of second-hand equipment, both lenses and bodies, that will work really well. They won't be the latest, they won't be the greatest, but for a standalone webcam, they probably will work quite good. And you can get some great deals from those camera shops. Yeah, I will just make one note. I noticed because I'm a camera uh, Canon fan. I've had cameras for a long time. There was an era where the chips got fast enough to do video and the cameras before that don't really have. I, I ran into a lot of, oh, gosh, my camera is a bit too old to run HDMI out to do this in terms of video. So just uh, pay attention to that. But I 100 percent agree. Uh, there are a lot of great cameras uh, out there that can do a fabulous job as a webcam and you can get them for really good prices if you do what Nigel suggesting and look into the aftermarket. Let's go to the next question. Kyle Hammond from Chicago, Illinois. Does the phone control app on Insta360 Link show promise of getting more control over OSC or a sign we should give up that hope? Jeffrey Powers, start us off. The well, to begin with, you're you're doing something over the phone. It's mostly going to be wireless going to your camera, so there's always a chance that 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 could break, and you you you're just sitting there trying to uh, pull that screen to the left or right, and it's just not going to do anything. So there's always that aspect of things. On the other hand, it's it's only going to get better from here. So and and that's including adding AI ability to it. Like for instance, last week I was in production and uh, I was using my PTZ, you know, regular PTZ camera, and they have uh, PTZ Optics has this uh, camera management uh, software now, where it takes it. A lot of the older cameras can be used, and basically what it'll do is it'll actually map out points on the person, so it can, can uh, track them and control them a little bit better. So. With all that, and you might not use the AI ability in some cases, you need to have some manual control, but with that AI ability attached, it can help you. So if it doesn't see you moving left, and, and even though you're pulling the fake joystick to the left, it we might react to that and say, hey, we need to move left for uh, to keep that uh, that person in line. So I, like I said, I think it's only going to get better. Uh, we're And in this a- aspect, we're in its infancy. Mm, uh, let's see, Alex. Well, we hope so. <laughs> we hope it gets better. Uh, with Link, the one of the things to look at is there's a link, I think, in inside of Discord under the Alex announcements, giving people a place that you can request. Uh, so if you haven't done that already, there's a there's a link there to go to GitHub and uh, request a more SDK, you know, a more, you know, an API to control the the camera. Um, I think that that's the thing that we want to see more of. I think that the the phone control app is a good step in the right direction. But what we really need is a full API that we can use to control it, or people like us are going to move to the OpSpot. Um, so I'm testing, you know, the I, as I said before, the I think the image quality on the OpSpot Tiny 2 is about the same. Um, maybe not quite exactly the same, but very, very close to the link. Uh, its software is significantly less useful than the link <laughs> the software I'm like by a lot uh, so but it has an API and so we may choose it over better software just because we can control it remotely and that's the thing that that I think Insta360 is missing let's go to the next question from David Brady in New York New York asking I've got a screen recording of an iPad and I need to extract screen frames and crop them to a specific size Is there any slick way via script, automator, or voodoo to pull this off? Mitch Hill, help us out. 
Wow. Uh, voodoo. Well, voodoo would mean putting uh, tracking points on the uh, iPad in advance, but if you don't have that luxury, uh, you could do it in Photoshop if you need stills by using the transform and crop functions. Uh, if it's moving video you need, uh, you could do it After Effects uh, with corner pinning, and if you need very precise um, uh, selection, you could do it with uh, Mocha. But the strange thing about the question is that usually I'm doing the opposite. I'm putting something in or on the iPad uh, during the video, and you can do that with those things also. Courtney. If you're just extracting screen frames, single frames, bitmaps, uh, and you have a Windows machine available, uh, BIMP Lite uh, has batch processing. I've used it for years from Softronic. It allows you to uh, scale or crop a whole group of pictures, thousands of pictures. You set your crop or your scale, and it'll take all your input pictures and scale them, crop them, and output them in its new format. So batch processing with BIMP Lite, or I think Irfan View does a similar thing. And I think there's, is there batch processing in Photoshop? I don't have the latest version of Photoshop, so I can't tell you. But yes. I think you can batch process in Photoshop as well. Alex. I have to admit, I have to do this a fair bit. And the way that I do it, is I tend to open it in motion. I set the frame to what I need it to, the, the you know, just the event frame. And then I just open the movie in it, move it around to what I need and hit export frame. <laughs> you know, and so I just keep on exporting the frames out if they're constantly the same ones. And I don't know what I, how I would use a script only because I don't know how I would, uh, I don't know, like, how would you pick the frame that you need to export? If you need to, if you need to do all and just push out the whole movie, that's one thing. But otherwise, you could do that, and then you could do a, a variety of other things. But I usually I'm trying to pick frames that I need to pull out of. Another thing that's really kind of fun is if you need a, a screen that's bigger than the iPad or bigger than a web page that's bigger, like oftentimes web pages are long, I'll capture them all and then use the difference overlap to let, you know, set them all up so I build a big one, and now I can kind of move around in it. So that might be another thing you might want to think about. Mitch has a follow-up, Mitch? Yeah, my follow-up is it's kind of hard to automate it because there's some tweaking that has to be done, particularly if somebody's holding the iPad because it's going to be shifting even if they held it very, very, very still. Um, so you're going to need to tweak those uh, corner points in order to get them uh, to be consistent from shot to shot. Next question. From Matt L. in Oakland, California. Thoughts on how to monetize a live stream replay platforms? Jeffrey Powers, help us out. Yeah, there's a lot of different platforms that you can uh, use to uh, monetize. It also depends on whether you're going to have this behind a paywall or in front of a paywall or uh, absolutely free for people to watch. Uh, anything that has a description that can offer uh, external links, uh, you can always put in links for the uh, whatever is being explained there and just really just link it out uh, completely for whatever whatever uh, they're talking about inside there. Uh, you could put on QR codes. So those uh, QR codes show up and they just tell somebody to, that's what they're doing on TV now. They say, pause, pause the video and, and, uh, and scan the QR code. Uh, so that's always a possibility. And, that, and you can put those in with a little bit of post-production as well. Um, but most of the platforms, and we're talking the free, like YouTube and Facebook and stuff like that, and then the paid like Vimeo, all offer abilities to put... Uh, Put advertising, get onto the onto the uh, ad sensor or whatever system that they have, so you can actually make some money while people watch your videos. Alex, yeah, if you're talking about a specific live stream, Vimeo is probably the best for the monetizing a live stream. You have you just have a lot of control. You you're able to 
you're able to set up a lot of different levels of what you're doing there. You can even build apps. They'll build apps for you. So you can have something that's down, downloadable like a, you know, an Apple TV app across iPhone, Android. All of those platforms uh, are available. And so it it's a very effective platform. I think they've really kind of cornered that market from an ease of use perspective. Uh, they've really kind of figured that one out. Let's go to the next question. And it is another question from our QR code from Andre Dole in Berlin. My barcode scanner really struggled scanning that code. I needed several attempts to get to the URL. How could this be? Alex? My guess is is that you're doing it right now. For instance, when I'm in a super source where it's a little bit smaller, it probably isn't quite as quite large enough to make that work. Uh, it probably works a little bit better when I'm full screen. Hmm, there you go. Uh, Jeffrey Powers. I've also seen if you're if you're pulling it from a computer screen, if you have an older computer screen, and the pixel the the DPI isn't isn't as great, uh, you might run into problems. There was actually a couple of weeks ago, it was a high end monitor. I was trying to pull a QR code from, and it, the phone just wasn't seeing it as a QR code. And so, uh, and of course, it also depends on your phone. I mean, if you've got a phone from five six years ago, it's going to have a harder time. Uh, uh, doing that recognition than as something that, you know, like an iPhone 14 Pro Max. Yeah, I had a little bit of the same experience. I actually tried to shoot it off of my teleprompter screen when Alex first put it up and it wasn't connecting at all. So I went up to my larger monitor, got my phone a little bit closer, and then suddenly it worked just fine. So sometimes it's just scale. Courtney? Yeah, you might try turning stabilization on too. So if you have that in uh, in your phone's camera, turn on stabilization. That'll help it make it easier for it to grab a stable frame. Uh, and if there's moving video behind it, I can see that might distract the uh, the decoder. Uh, if there's a lot of moving video right around the periphery of the QR code, let's go to the next question. Next one in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Discuss social listening versus social analytics with tools like Radian 6, which strengthened its free forever plan in July. Alex. Radian 6 is a service that basically allows a, a company typically to understand when someone's posting about them, they get to understand what their reach is, you know, how much, you know, and there was a company, there was actually a service called Clout that that did attempt to do many of the same things. And that just tells you when you see someone, you know, complaining about you or excited about you, this is how many people they're impacting and taking into account things like how many followers do they have? But not only that, how many followers do those followers have and how many followers do those followers have? So it's the the reach, the a potential reach of someone and what that allows companies to do, whether people like it or not, is it allows them to make decisions about whether they should respond immediately to that person or not. <laughs> you you want to, you know, they used to say that, you know, one unhappy customer might affect 10, now it could affect millions. And so you have to be very careful of that as a company. So, you, you know, you can't, you can't oftentimes deal with every person complaining about your product, but you, you can at least focus your most senior people on people who could potentially do a lot of damage to your brand very fast. And so Radiant 6 has been out for, I don't know, 15 years, that, and, it, and it lets you um, do those kinds of, it has those kinds of tools so you get an alert that, hey, someone with a reach of million, you know, 1.8 million or whatever is now complaining about your product. You might want to have someone reach out to them privately and, and sort that out. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, Jeffrey, you mentioned something having to take, uh, sometimes having to take more than one laptop when traveling. What do you usually have to do that? Jeffrey? 
And probably the worst example or the worst person to ask that question, because I usually take about 100 pounds worth of gear with me wherever I go, um, because I'm, I'm doing a lot of different types of productions. This last week, what we did was we did a um, talking head presentation. So in order for that to work, I had to take one one machine that would actually record uh, the laptop so I could be actually free from the machine so I could move around. And then another laptop, which was the technically called the presenter's laptop. So the PowerPoint presentations or whatever, they were doing a demonstration, it would all come from that uh, that machine. I will say that on my lowest end packing, I always take my Mac Mini and my MacBook with me because the Mac Mini can go headless and I can uh, I bring a small router, the GL iNet router with me and then I can remote in and you do desktop from the uh, from my MacBook to the uh, M1. That way if I need to do any uh, any post-production or, you know, like rendering of, of videos, then I can let that Mac M1 do that. And I still have this laptop free so I can uh, do some surfing or working from uh, whatever. I will also say that portable monitors are awesome. I wish I would have had them it, it, 10 years ago because with a portable monitor and an M1, uh, I can set up a really decent machine with multiple monitors and get a lot of work done by moving uh, different programs to different screens so I can go back and forth. Next question. Cindy Drozda from Erie, Colorado. Alex, I like the idea of that big softbox you mentioned. What type of filter did you use in front of the lights and what lights are you using? Alex, do you want to hop for that? Or, I, for me, one of the least yeah, expensive and most useful. Oh, okay. I just I was I was so I was trying to set it up and get it get it set up. So uh, I use this very expensive photography diffusion fabric, fifteen by five feet. So it's an enormous amount of fabric, which I have folded a couple times in front of this to to do it, and uh, it cost me, as you can see, a whopping twenty three dollars. Um, what I did there is I I folded it a couple times to figure out exactly what I wanted, and then I drove um, I drove grommets through it. Um, I've gotten good <laughs> at, at doing it without cutting my finger, hitting my thumb, but I drove grommets through that through the uh, through that fabric, so I had something to tie it to, and then I just tie it and kind of hang it a little bit loose you know into into that area and it's uh it's worked pretty well you know as far as as far as lighting goes um and then behind it i have nanlite 100s uh you know and those are older ones that we had laying around so i, I put them up there so oh actually they're nanlite 68s um 60 the 68 uh, nanlites and those those are the uh ones that i'm using back there but you could use a lot of different lights in fact i'm going to experiment i'm trying to con actually make my kit less expensive to figure out what can we do with it? Um, so, so I'm, but, but the Nanlite, you could use a lot of cheaper lights because now you have a lot of diffusion. Um, so something to think about. I was going to suggest that in my early days, I used cheap shower curtains because what you really want is just to diffuse the light and anything that you can't see through transparency that turns a sharp edge form into a soft edge form. But last time I was in Bed Bath & Beyond, shower curtains are way more expensive than Alex's solution. Well, and, and also you want to be careful. Photography ones will be a little bit more neutral. The shower curtains oftentimes have a little bit of tint to them. Yeah, I've, I've run the same kind of thing. But diffusion is the key here. Let's move on to the next question. From George E. Kennedy, Jr. in Washington, D.C., all Thunderbolt 4 cables are not made equal. What specs should I look for when considering the purchase of an AKT4 USB-C to DisplayPort cable? Mitch, help him out. 
Um, I would go to an OWC uh, and do a and do a search there. I've never had a problem with their Thunderbolt cables; they're a little pricey, but uh, that's a good place to start. A Jeffrey Powers. The biggest thing, and George, you probably already know this, the biggest thing is to make sure that it is a true Thunderbolt 4 cable. If you get a USB-C 4 cable, and I've been seeing them on Amazon, they've been promoting them as Thunderbolt 4 cables, and you get them, they're USB-C 4 cables. These are two completely different cables, and they can cause a lot of different results. OWC, as Mitch said, they have. You can go on Amazon and get uh, cables from there, four to six feet. Don't go over six feet. Courtney Gooden. Yeah, I would go for an adapter and then just use a DisplayPort cable that's rated for 8K, uh, because a lot like uh, like Jeffrey said, a lot of them are just USB-C, and and they will work if they're rated for 8K 60. Uh, you know, if you go online and search, you can get a lot of these little adapters that go from uh, USB-C with DisplayPort to, to DisplayPort, uh, and they'll carry 8K at 60. That particular anchor one says it will. And then just go with a regular DisplayPort cable that's designed for 8K, uh, and it'll be less of a problem. You do have to keep your cable short if you're trying to transmit 8K over any length at all. So the next question comes from our old friend 1F Jeff, and I, it's a little vague, but I think Alex has decoded it. So, Alex, you want to take a, a, a yes. swack at this? Mitch, want to read it? Yeah, Jeff Keithley is asking a question from the QR forum. Uh, how exactly does this work anyway? Uh, he's trying to figure out how, how the new system works. So there's a QR code that you can see here, and you can simply type the, type the URL in or use the QR code. That goes into kind of a, uh, a kind of a protected sandbox so that we can see the questions before we put them in. That then can be promoted to, to our Q&A system that people can vote on the questions still. So there's still the voting that happens inside of, the, uh, inside of Makana, but this allows it to be kind of a low friction way for people to do it. A lot of times we use this by itself uh, for a lot of our clients. So if they want to do a big show, um, as I said, we, we did it um, a couple days ago and we got hundreds and hundreds of questions in, in minutes. <laughs> so it's a very low friction way. Way to to aggregate questions without people having to log in and other things, but because they can't, they don't have to log in. We have to be put them in a put the questions in a sandbox first to make sure that they're appropriate. <laughs> so so that's the that's the that's the other side of that. I think we have just enough time for one more question before we get to our special guest. So next question, Douglas Carmichael. It's interesting the QR codes originated with automobile manufacturing and spread so broadly to other fields. What could that be? Chris Fenwick, start us off and. I think a good test for this is uh, my family, my my wife and her sister. They're not fans of technology at all. They think what I do is rocket science. Um, they would have never used a QR code, never would have used a QR code before COVID when you had to use it in a restaurant for the um, for the menu. See here, scan this and decide what you want to eat. I think COVID. I think COVID really pushed the um, acceptance to the general public, not the tech public like us, but the general public uh, to accept what QR codes were. Jeffrey Powers. I was going to say the same thing. If it wasn't for restaurants using QR codes, I think we'd still be fighting that whole, should we use it, should we not use it? Now the next step is to have a QR code where if, because you're on your phone when a QR code shows up, you can't scan that. But uh, there's going to be software that will eventually scan that for you so you can use that as a hyperlink. 
So we've got a couple of notes here before we slip into our second hour. First and foremost, don't forget, if you're an Isadora fan, and we've been talking about this for a long time, L. Wilson Spiro has been on hiatus, but he's going to return on September 7th here uh, for Thursdays. So one week from now, you get to get back into that thing, an incredible opportunity to learn how to use Isadora on your own projects. Mimo Live with uh, The Lab with Oliver Breidenbach will happen tomorrow, September 1st at 10 a.m. Pacific, 17 Zulu for those of you around the world and they're going to be talking about him coaching the conversations with Tony Mobley team live on the air on our show so if you want to learn about how some of that happens tune in tomorrow uh in two weeks, Alex is doing again, and I just wanted to bring this up really quickly because the potential uh, panelist and potential panelist meetings are going to start up again. And so Friday, uh, Saturday, September 16th at uh, 10 a.m. Pacific time. If you're interested, have ever been interested in wanting to be a panelist here on Office Hours, that's your chance to kind of get into the system, figure out how things work. Uh, it's really, really useful in a lot of ways. Not only does it increase your profile kind of across the industry, but just I can tell you from personal experience, you learn so much by showing up here every day and participating. We have an amazing group of panelists, experts uh, from all over the world assemble here every day to answer questions. And by doing that, we get to know each other. And I think I've made friendships that will last the rest of my career easily by taking this part of things. Uh, also, if you just want to be a general volunteer, that meeting is also happening September 16th, right after the meeting I just mentioned before. So these are some of the things that we're heading towards. Uh, most of our regular panelists, oh, one last note, are well acquainted with our Q&A Mukana interface. If you are not, please hop to the website and get hooked up into that system because it really allows you to... to interact with the show, drive our content and all the things that are happening in terms of participating in a kind of a rich and more detailed way. We're going to take a tiny break here and then come back with our second hour. We are really excited to have with us today a topic that I didn't know I was as excited about and interested in until I started dealing in it. You know, modern content creation, especially on the very high level, often requires creating virtual environments where actors and vehicles can move through realistic scenes. Location shooting out in the field to do that still happens, but increasingly Hollywood wants to bring the environment into a soundstage. And that's where background plates become a big deal. Our guest today is David C. Smith from Plate Pros, one of the premier vendors of that type of content. And I have to say, they've got some of the coolest camera rigs for shooting background plates that I have ever seen. We ran across them, I think, at NAB a couple of years ago or last year. Uh, David, welcome to Office Hours. It is great to have you here. Great. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Uh, looking forward to the conversation and uh, looking forward to helping everybody else understand uh, how important background plates can be uh, and how much you've seen them without hopefully realizing that that was, uh, that that was happening. That surprised me when I started seeing what is done. I suddenly started watching content and saying, oh, my, that must have been a background shot that way. Can you explain for people who don't know what a plate is, kind of the sure. evolution of how it came about? Sure. So as you stated uh, kind of at the, at the introduction, 
a lot of times it's uh, necessary in storytelling to place an actor into a situation that's either logistically too challenging. Sometimes it, it is a, a location that you can't have access to. Sometimes it's a fantasy location that doesn't even exist. And so we're able to create locations virtually through a number of different processes. Uh, and one of those is uh, is the filming of a background plate. So that's when a camera is sent out into the world uh, somewhere that is a remote location sometimes or a, a challenging location. And we film that location in specific ways that is allowed then to be composited in to the final product with the actor. Usually the actor is now on a stage. So today it's uh, increasing popularity that that would be an LED stage, uh, of a virtual volume, a car stage. Um, but typically this used to be done with green screen and before that even rear projection on film. So plates as a concept have, have existed almost since the beginning of narrative filmmaking uh, in some form or other. Uh, it's just now that they've become a little bit more uh, realistic, a little bit more complicated in the way we acquire them. Uh, and then the processes of actually getting those uh, actors in front of those plates uh, has evolved over time. Uh, but essentially, you're 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 filming out in the world and bringing that content into a controlled environment where you're now allowing an actor to perform in front of that. So today, most of what we do is 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 360. So we're filming uh, in every direction all at once. And I, we saw pictures of some of the rigs that you have. I don't know whether you have any pictures today, but I do. Yeah. It, it, it's, oh, it's, oh it's, let's see some of them because I don't sure, think sure. people understand how sophisticated these rigs are to capture sure. a 360 degree view. Um, yeah, actually, one second. Let me just get my. So actually, I also have uh, a quick reel of some of our work. I might throw that up real quick first, just to kind of Absolutely. help get an idea, an idea of, of what it is, yeah. what uh, we might have seen see and if... didn't know we were seeing your products. Yeah. So let me know. Is that working? You should be seeing a still yes, from the Joker. It. All right. So let's get that to play. Um, so this is uh, all shot in a parking lot in Brooklyn. Uh, and in this case, now we're in a soundstage, uh, also in New York. So everything that you're seeing happening outside of the vehicle, everything outside the windows is our content. So it's 360 degree moving environments. Uh, and, and basically, Everything that's happening uh, in the foreground is being photographed in uh, usually a soundstage. So this is uh, an LED stage. So everything you see outside the window is is visible to the actors. Green screen here from the Irishman. So there's a wide variety of projects that we work on. Um, a lot of what we do is what you're seeing here, which is the vehicle-based work. Uh, but some of what we do is also outside of the car. And you'll see a couple of clips coming up for that. This is a Steven Spielberg film, The Post. So this is a green screen shot that Ireland did an amazing job tracking. Um, so uh, essentially everything outside the car was filmed ahead of time uh, as part of a plate shoot with a 360 degree custom array that we build and uh, and deploy uh, as as kind of our core product for plate pros. Uh, there's one shot coming up here that's going to be a rooftop piece. So yeah, this is from what we do in the shadows. So everything the the building foreground and the little neon sign is real. Everything else is a plate. Uh, likewise, this is for Creed 2. We did all the crowd work. So we actually went to real boxing matches and put a 360 array in the middle of the ring, uh, in the middle of the, uh, in the middle of the boxing match and filmed actual, uh, actual boxing crowds. And then those were composited into the final product. So in terms of, of Creed 2, we had only had about 150 extras on stage. Everything else that you saw there was completely, uh, was brought in from after the fact. So the, this is one of the arrays that we use to create that. So this is part of our vehicle array. We call this our Gen 3. 
Um, and this is utilizing, in this case, it was 17 cameras uh, filming simultaneously to be able to create uh, what's called an HDRI, so a high dynamic range uh, 360 plate. So it's able to see everything moving in all directions completely surrounding the car. Um, and uh, a little bit later on, I think we can get into uh, some of what that the actual plate itself looks like. It's very, very cool technology. And I would imagine that th those moving shots require a lot of thought in terms of matching geometry. Yeah. Are, you work with directors and directors of photography. What are some of the challenges that they bring to you? That And what are some of the benefits? Because it seems to me that obviously to be able to light the talent the way they want to and yeah. match the background to it is a huge time saver for them. Yeah, it's, it's beneficial. So the it, in terms of who we deal with, a lot of times it, it, we have a touch point really with almost every department. Um, so obviously the director will be a, a huge part. The DP is is probably the, the single um, uh, largest contributor that we're working with. But oftentimes we'll be working with the gaffers, the art department, locations, uh, because our environment will have an impact on all of those departments. So uh, especially with LED stages, when we're using the plate uh, as a 360 degree environment, we'll be placing the other angle so there's there's one view that the camera is seeing behind the actor but everything else is still present on the stage so we have a, a complete sphere of of content and that's being presented on other panels that are now lighting the scene as well so a lot of times we'll be working with the gaffer because they need to understand how our lighting environment that we're creating from the plate is going to impact their more traditional studio lighting that they're doing in addition. So in the case of vehicle work, that might be uh, interactive lighting so that they may be moving some lights, uh, you know, doing other LED fixtures or, or lights on rigs that move around the stage. Um, and we want to make sure that the, their interactive light and the plate agree and, and feel like it's part of a cohesive whole. Uh, and then obviously locations, art department, we're, we're creating the environment. And so all of those departments really have a role to play. Uh, and that's one of the things from an education standpoint and where a podcast like this is helpful um, is there's a there's a huge education component where a lot of people aren't aware of just how uh, how pervasive this technology is and how it can best be used. And so the more people are aware of it, uh, you know, the, the, the easier our process is of getting everybody up to speed and kind of getting the uh, getting the best product possible. Our panelists have questions as well. Let's start with Alex. Alex? Sure. I have a few. <laughs> Not bad. I imagine. Uh, um, uh, how, how has LED ch changed your production process from compositing? It, it feels like it's just a, it's a lot better, but uh, has, it, has it really created more demand for, for your kind of plates? Yeah, it's changed a little bit the way we do plates. And Alex, you may not know this, but you and I worked together probably about 15 years ago. I gaffed a green screen car shot of all things for you, I think, for an educational thing. So it's good to see you again after many years. See, I knew you were um, familiar. I was like, I, yeah, was like, I yeah. know, I know him. I think I my can't. beard was probably a lot thinner back then and a lot less gray hair. But yeah. um, but ironically, we were doing a green screen, uh, a green screen car shot. Um, and that was actually before I even really got into the plate thing. So maybe this was, you, the, this it, was in LA, right? In, it um, was San yeah. in Santa Clarita. I believe. It was, it was yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. that. Yeah. Yep. I remember it. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm glad you remember it. Uh, so the, um, typically when we were doing the, the, the first version of this that I did, uh, we started about, uh, 2011, uh, with another company and, and with that, we did a nine camera array that was just shooting essentially front 
the front side back and 45 angles and then a ninth camera that was shooting a reflection for the windshield uh, that was really appropriate for green screen but with led we now in green screen it's much easier to adjust the plate to match the the geometry of the foreground with led especially large curved wall volume led now we have a complete light environment so that's taken us from nine discrete plates that you can kind of choose which one suits the need of the shot. And now we have one massive plate that lets you see in every direction stitched together at all at once. Um, and actually I have an example of that too. I can show you real quick. Um, so this is one of our 360 degree plates. Let me see if I can get the share to work. And okay, you should you be go. seeing something yep. there okay so let's see if we can get this to play so this is now i'm actually controlling this the looking around is me dragging my mouse so this is not baked in you have every direction looking forward looking backward looking straight up um, all together as a single plate so what this allows now is on you can imagine say a large curved wall led volume these pixels are presented in reality and an actor sitting in the car can look in any direction and see what they need to see. If there's a story point that they need to be able to see what's happening in the minivan next to them, the minivan is there on stage for them. So if it's changed anything, um, it's made full stitched 360 much more necessary and also for those plates to be much more stable. Um, with the green screen version of this, it's much easier to get away with plates that have a little bit of movement in them because in the compositing process, you can adjust for that movement or, or move that movement into the foreground. So we need much more stable plates and we need them to be more 360 um, so that we have all of the pixels from all the directions. But definitely the LED, uh, the insurgence of LED has has increased the need for this. So we've, uh, we've now found out that of the virtual production market as a as a whole and virtual production meaning in camera vfx on an led stage uh car work represents about 30 percent of that worldwide so the this kind of content is is definitely in high demand yeah we did i think we, the visual effects i did we did 105 shots for a, a little a small film and 70 of them were cars <laughs> car process yeah. so yeah you know so the uh and uh another question is so um what software are you using to stitch all that together is that a so there's a few there's a few different uh, uh it kind of depends on which version of our array we're doing. So uh, as a company, we're, we're kind of split into two different uh, divisions, two different parts. We have the content library, which is available on our website, playpros.com. Uh, that's a, a, a ever-growing library of pre-existing content that we travel all over the country and all over the world acquiring uh, interesting looking locations that you can just go on the website and license as stock footage. So that's one whole piece. And we have an array that we use for that 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 is um, maximized for efficiency since we're doing a high volume of that uh, in advance of the sale. Right. Then we also have a full production company where we're able to, if if it doesn't exist in the library, we'll go on set with productions and film bespoke plates specific to their needs. And oftentimes that's with a different version of the array. Um, so an example of that was that 17 camera array that I showed you a second ago. Um, that array we designed, we designed and developed specifically at the request of the cinematographer. Now that project hasn't come out yet. It's a superhero sequel that you'll be seeing soon. I can't say much more than that. Um, but there was a very specific need in the story for uh, the character to be driving in a, a, a section of New York on, um, on the highway that is a three-wall tunnel. 
So there's a there's a, a roof. It's when you're going under the UN building. There's a roof, there's a side, but then you're looking out over the river. And in this case, we wanted sunrise on the river. So you can imagine we're shooting a black tunnel as a roof in one side, and we're shooting directly into the sun on the other side. So the 17 cameras was a way for us to be able to capture two different sets of exposures simultaneously, one for the inside of the tunnel and one for the sunrise. And then those were merged together as as part of a post-process. So that stitching software is radically different than the stitching software that we would use for the library. Um, so the library is is actually an off-the-shelf um, uh, stitching program that's part of the camera system that we use, which is a, a, a company called Candow. It's the Candow Obsidian Pro. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for for something like the, uh, the the movie I was just mentioning, that will be either Mystica, Nuke. There's a wide variety of tools that go into play there. Um, and uh, uh, I believe the stitching for that one, that was actually farmed out to a VFX company called Barnstorm VFX here in Burbank. They did a tremendous job. Uh, the, the heavy lift on that. Uh, I can say that the stitching budget for those shots was more than the first feature that I DP'd. Um, so, <laughs> exactly. yeah. The shots look amazing. As someone who's done a lot of 360, um, you, I'm looking for seams. I'm looking for all those things. And it just they're just seamless. It's just a yeah. seamless, uh, you know, um, it's really, really amazing. Um, the uh, Now, do you have any licensing issues when you're shooting the stock footage, per- particularly where you're where you have to what, what do you have to deal with there when you're capturing sure. stuff? That's uh, a really good question. And it's something that Uh, I think needs to be talked about more as we're moving into virtual production, especially on the game engine side of things. I think that the licensing conversation has not been as robust as it needs to be. Um, So with our shooting uh, library plates, we have very specific um, guidelines that we follow and we've, we've been at this for a long time. It's, it's funny because most of my time now is spent on lawyer phone calls rather than out in the world shooting. Right. Um, so that's that's kind of the, the, the natural progression. Uh, but basically all of our uh, 360 content that we do for the library is shot in public space on public roads. So you won't find private property in the library um, because we would need to have clearances from that property for where we are. So everything is in kind of the fair use space. But then even within that, in our licensing agreement, we pass the clearance question onto the production. So it's a, it's a, it's a very clear point and it's something that we, we are, um, are very upfront about and that we make sure that we have that conversation very early in the process so that the production's legal team can wrap their head around why we're different than say a traditional piece of stock that you might get from Getty Images that they were able to get clearances from everybody in the footage. In our case, driving down the road, there may be hundreds of third parties that are visible in the frame that we would never be able to chase down at a stoplight and get everybody to sign a release. Um, But that's not that unusual if you're thinking about, say, a process trailer. So if you went out into the world and you shot the shot for real by putting the car on a trailer, towing that down the road through the middle of Manhattan, those same people would be visible in that that shot. In the shoot that uh, you worked on, that's exactly what happened there, baby. Yeah. Because we had we had green screen, but before that, we were we were pulling a car behind, you know, with a with a jib and everything right. else, and you're just capturing whoever's whoever's back there. And I think fair use is typically like if you're clearly a camera and you're going in your in a public area, people have you know, can't assume that they'd have privacy yeah. in that in that location. The the interesting thing that I didn't realize going into this, but I've now learned many times over, is different productions. And different studios have a very different interpretation of how fair use applies. Because as we know, fair use isn't a hard and fast law. It's more a set of 
loose guidelines. Um, and what's like interesting is code. Yeah. Each, each studio has a different interpretation. And one of the studios that we worked with, um, their legal team actually let us know that they keep a, uh, a fund set aside for third-party lawsuits because they want their stories on their network to, to appear in the same world that their audience is. So they don't mind seeing the Joe's plumbing sign on the side of the truck behind the plate because Joe's plumbing exists. They want McDonald's logos. They want Apple logos because they want to see that they want the audience to understand that they're in the same world as their characters, unlike doing the Kahuna burger or making up uh, something that's, that's clearly fictional. And so I thought that was interesting that that studio had, had taken a, a, a stance from a creative perspective that they thought it was better storytelling for their audience to exist in the same world as their characters. And they were willing literally to put their money where the mouth was with that, that they had a fund set aside for it. So their interpretation of fair use is radically different than say doing a a commercial for a brand where they're very locked down and they want to scrub the footage and remove all, all instances of any logos or anything else because it's a a, a branded spot. So um, we try to stay agnostic to that. We try and stay out of it and say, look, we're giving you the asset. It's up to you to decide how to, how, how you're, sensitivity is addressed by how you clear it. How much of your work is custom versus uh, stock? Uh, it's varied over time. Just sure. Um, from a uh, early on, it was almost entirely, well, before we had the first library, it was entirely custom. So we kind of right. cut our teeth in the custom world. And then eventually it shifted over to being probably about 60-40 in favor of library versus custom. Uh, now that we're moving into the next generation of this, uh, of the fully stitched 360 content, we're finding that uh, we're, we kind of reset the clock on that. So the new library and the new 360 rig, we're now doing a lot more custom, but we're now seeing, you know, we just launched the new library at uh, Cinegear in LA a few months ago, and we're now starting to feel that picking up. Obviously, the current circumstance with the strike is throwing things into a little bit of a, a an unusual uh uh, you know, it, it, it's, right. it's not a normal market right now. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, I would say typically, um, uh, probably about 60, 40 is, is a good place that we'd like to be. So 60% library, 40% custom, uh, is, is kind of a typical, um, stasis point. Last question from, from me is the, when you have these files and you're looking for lighting sources and so on and so forth, does your, do your plates carry any metadata to tell like in a virtual environment where those mm-hmm. lights might be? Or is that something that has to just kind of be worked out on set? It's mostly worked out on set. Um, basically the, uh, the main thing that we're tracking will be location. Um, depending on the needs of the production, we'll do speed. But the nice thing about a 360 plate is everything that you, everything is there visible for you to understand what's happening. And especially when we're using the HDRI version of it, um, you know, in, in traditional uh, 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 3D compositing and 3D modeling, it's been you know, practiced for a long time to use HDRI as the lighting source for kind of your sky dome. Um, we're now able to do that physically in reality by doing it on an LED stage. So right. uh, in the case of the HDRI, like we had, it, it, there's there's no need for metadata to tell you the sun's over there because you can look over there and see it. Because the LED um, is capable of going way brighter than what you need. Right, <laughs> you know? right. So, yeah. And in that case, we actually use the sun, you know, with the HDRI, we're able to now have, we had, I think it was probably about 24 stops of dynamic range right. um, in the final file with that. Uh, and, and all of that was kept live in the file in real time playback so that we didn't have any, uh, any color timing 
in in advance. Everything was present on stage. So the playback operator had the ability to to really run through that full range of stops and could then do power windows, essentially flying a small square over a portion and adjust that portion. So if we needed the sun to feel brighter, they could reach into the sun section and pull the sun into the brighter side of the gamut and let the rest of the plate stay at the darker side because that was appropriate for exposure. So it gives you the ability to um, to adjust a virtual light but at the same time, that light still maintains the characteristics of the dynamic lighting environment because when it goes under the tunnel, it will create a shadow. When it goes under a dappled tree, you'll feel that dappling moving through the uh, through the light. So um, from a metadata perspective, uh, most of what we're doing is just making sure that, uh, that the color pipeline is maintained through the process so that we know that uh, on playback, they're applying the correct lookup tables and, and that, it, that that's one of the biggest challenges because there is so many different stages and all of those stages have a different uh, uh, technology stack in play, making sure that everybody understands the nature of the file they're getting and how it uh, how to play it back properly. Uh, that's that's the main thing that we're really interested in. But in terms of individual pieces within it, uh, that's usually worked out on the day. That's, great. that's just blown my mind. I can't believe that actually the volumetric rig is now your lighting rig in a in a real kind of sense. That's amazing. Yeah. You're um, literally Courtney. lighting the actor with with the content. Yeah, yeah that's astonishing, Courtney. Uh, a couple of questions. Let's start with uh, back to the clearance information. Uh, I know in a lot of, uh, I used to work on, uh, you know, network TV shows that carry advertisements. So they were mm -hmm. very picky legal wise about any logos, identifiable brands, et right. cetera, out the window so that they, you know, didn't want to advertise a competitor's brand. Do you guys have to clean that stuff up if they ask for scrubbed uh, video footage that you have in your library? Or do you leave it up to the visual effects crew if they're going to have to clean it up before they either shoot process or, or post composite? Sure. Yeah. I mean, our specialty is the acquisition and and the building of the arrays. So um, we have a, a, a small machine shop and and, you know, CAD and, and CNC. And so for us, it's it's about building the array and acquiring the content that meets those specifics. Once we take and, and, and we're now in the stitching game when it comes to our library content. Once we get past that point, that then gets handed off to uh, either the, the show's VFX team oftentimes, uh, or we have a number of VFX vendors that we work with closely. And so we'll hand it to them uh, if they need to do any specific cleaning beyond that. Uh, but yeah, so we're, we're more the acquisition side uh, and, and the stitching and stabilization. Uh, anything beyond that would go uh, either to the show or we would be handing that off to a partner. And a couple other questions I, in your rig that you showed there, that was great because mm -hmm. a lot of people don't realize they used to capture these background plates, but with an array of uh, DSLRs or something uh, strapped to the roof of a, you know, sure. of a car. Sure. Uh, but it doesn't give you the right uh, angle for, you know, out the window of a passenger yeah. vehicle. So yeah. you have to be lower. And so your rig uh, uh, compensated for that by having the driver much lower than a normal driver would be in the camera at eye level in a sedan, let's say. Yeah, I can actually uh, what was, bring some What was the up. reason for the dual vertical cameras in your rig that you showed, the 17 camera? Yeah, uh, I can bring that back up so you can see it. Yeah. Um, so 
the vertical you can see stack that now. dual cameras. Yeah. Yeah. So in this case, uh, it's essentially two rings of eight cameras, and these are the uh, the BGH one from Panasonic. It's a small box camera that actually we help Panasonic uh, to develop for for this purpose and many others. It's a it's a really fantastic little rig. Um, but what this allowed essentially the two uh, the two rings of eight are capturing the full uh, 360 degree panoramic view, you'll see that the 17th camera on the top has an ultra wide fisheye so that we're able to get the the top view, so the up and over. So we're, that's actually a 180 degree lens. Uh, so it's able to see everything that the, uh, that the cameras around the ring can't. The second ring, the ring below is actually, uh, is, is adjusted to about, be about four stops lower in exposure than the top ring. So what that allows is us to be able to capture essentially the same plate at two radically different exposures. And then uh -huh. those were blended together to create a single image that has more dynamic range than the camera could create uh, individually. So these are about a 13 to 14 stop dynamic range per camera. Um, and then by by stacking those with a four stop offset, we're able to push that dynamic range a lot further. Um, and that's this was very specific to uh, to the project that we mentioned. Uh, so this mm -hmm. was it actually on set when we were kind of getting ready for a night shot. Um, and this is with uh, with the wireless control and wireless video feed for uh, for Video Village. Uh, and this is the rig as it travels. So that um, the the reason for the two rings is is for uh, high dynamic range. And the uh, a little piece of genius. Uh, a shout out to Tim Karras at at Barnstorm because he came up with this. They ended up actually treating those as a stereo pair. So if you turn your head 90 degrees sideways, you can imagine that the upper ring could be a left eye and the lower ring could be a right eye. And so in the stitching, he was actually able to help the geometric correction by treating them as a stereo pair using using what would normally have been a left eye right eye set of tools to be able to bring those images together geometrically uh, which was a, a particularly um, little stroke of genius on tim's part and where do you set your focus because you know when you're photographing on stage that screen may not be a, the appropriate distance to for the focal length of the lens the taking sure. lens of the primary camera do you keep everything in focus and then defocus later or Exactly. So these these uh, the the BGH is a micro four thirds sensor. So it's a small sensor, um, which is actually uh, a lot. We get the question a lot of why not use a, a full frame sensor? Uh, and focus is actually one of the reasons that we like smaller sensors. Is we're we're carrying more of the depth of field in focus. We don't have a shallow depth of field. We have a much larger depth of field. Excuse me. And and the reason for that is with the plate, you can always defocus a plate. It's almost impossible to refocus an out of focus plate. So our goal is to try and carry as much of the plate in focus as possible and allow the defocusing to happen uh, in the moment on the stage. And the reason for that is actually, especially going back to the green screen positing days, each lens that you photograph the actor with, if you say start on a wide two shot of two people sit, you know, in, in the front seat of the car and you push into say a hundred millimeter lens to get the close up, you need a different degree of fall off in the background. So from one shot to the next, from one lens change to the next, you need the plate to be a different level of defocus. So if we were to say pre blur the plate by shooting it out of focus, we would need to shoot it at a range of different degrees of of blurriness that you would then have to call up in the correct sequence to match the the shot that's being photographed so it's much yeah. easier to shoot everything in focus and then selectively defocus it shot by shot 
And that defocusing is handled uh, algorithmically on the stage with uh, to the Correct. file itself? Yeah, so it's a combination. Now that we're in LED, uh, there's a natural, the, the natural physics of the optics of the camera mm-hmm. will uh, impart it's different so that the led will naturally fall further out of focus when you're on the longer lens. Um, but that's only up to a point. Depending upon um, the so distance we'll, of the we'll screen blur. from the, from the right. car. Yeah. Right. So as because the screen is closer than reality would have been, we'll still defocus it all bit. But yes, that's handled in the media server. And the other, can, Oh, go ahead. Corey, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the other, uh, the other thing that always gives away a plate shot, uh, is, uh, stabilization. You know, if the background is bouncing and the people in the foreground are not, it right. kind of is a dead giveaway. Do you any do you uh, do stabilization or is electronic stabilization added later? Yeah, um, it's all of the above. Um, <laughs> so actually, I'm going to jump back in again. I stopped the share and realized I probably should have stayed in it because uh, there's some things in here that we can show about that. Um, so the uh, so this is the library array. So this is the other camera that we use. But you can see that this is mounted. shock absorbers yeah Yeah, so this is a a fully shock mounted system um there's actually spring arms below what you can see in the shot here uh so there's about 14 inches of vertical travel that is fully sprung and and dampened uh so the car can move up to 14 inches up and down and the camera will stay put um physics will hold it in place Uh, and then this is on a uh, a three-axis stabilized head called the alpha head so pan, tilt, and roll are dynamically stabilized based on uh, a, a gyro sensor that's able to, to see where you are, so it's locked to the horizon. Even right. with that, we will see a slight amount of jitter. So we've actually developed our own stabilizing software that allows us to, to do 360-aware stabilization um, specific to driving stuff. Is that that's a great. single driver operator that is able to manage all of that, or does it take two people, or what, what's the actual operator configuration look like i apologize i got a little tickle on the throat um yeah it, so it's um in the in the library circumstance that would be a single operator um so the driver in the car is able to uh to manage the array manage the head uh, it's actually controlled by an ipad that's mounted to the to the front of the car um so that's able to be handled by a single operator we usually will have a second person they always travel as a crew of two so the second person is there for support, um, honestly, for navigation. We're usually, uh, we have wireless communications in our in, in the helmet that the driver would be wearing, uh, and they're able to kind of help them navigate the roads. When we're on set doing something that's more that 17 camera array, uh, now we would have a chase car and wireless video feed back to that car. That will have a, um, uh, a head operator who's actually remotely controlling the pan, tilt, and roll of the head uh, to make sure that everything is aligned correctly to the environment. Uh, and then we usually have a, a, a crew of a couple of ACs to manage those 17 cameras. Um, the uh, the library camera is essentially eight lenses in a single system. When we're dealing with the larger array 17 cameras, those are 17 individual cameras. Now they are network controlled so that we can control them as one big unit. Um, but you are managing a lot more data, managing a lot more settings. So we have a, a little bit more crew uh, present to be able to manage that. It's a little bit more of a beast. Your car reminds me vaguely of the old British Morgan. Did you have to custom build everything from the ground up? No, thankfully, there's the, this is a, a vehicle called a Vanderhall. Um, so it's an auto cycle. Uh, it's legally, and this is actually an important part from one of the things that we talked about a second ago about lens height. 
Um, legally, it's a motorcycle that gained a wheel. It's a three-wheel vehicle. Um, and so because it's a motorcycle that gained a wheel, not a car that lost one, uh, it adheres to the motorcycle safety requirements. So we're able to do things with this vehicle that we couldn't do with a car. So there's no airbags. There's uh, We're able to, if we have a full face shield, we don't have a windshield, which is actually very important because now we're able to get the cameras down at a height that we would normally be uh, uh, blocked by a windshield. Um, so it's the, the choice of vehicle is very specific to this kind of work. It just so happens that uh, the, the three-wheel auto cycle turns out to be kind of the perfect car for, for this kind of work um, because of that reason. So uh, this is made that it's a, a small company in Utah. It actually starts its life as a Chevy Cruze and they, uh, they rip it apart and turn it into this really fun, vehicle that was it's designed as a recreational vehicle and i can say it's a lot of fun to drive um but it is uh um, it is something that's an off-the-shelf thing so you know we we were able to modify an existing vehicle which saved us a lot of a lot of effort how do you, how do you avoid people just pointing and going look at that isn't that the coolest thing i've seen on the road <laughs> when so the 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 previous generation of this is uh, something that you mentioned before the idea of of attaching a bunch of cameras to the outside of a regular car. <clears throat> and we still do that work as well. And so even that people would pay attention to it. Um, but most people just assume it's the Google car and they kind of ignore it or they just give us a wave and everything's fine. Uh, nice. This one this one looks like the, the, the geeky Batmobile. Um, so it does get a lot more attention. Um, uh, the good news is places like New York, New Yorkers don't care about anything anyway. Um, so for the most part, we get away with it. How do you nice. hide the how do you hide the chase vehicles since you're shooting 360 degree video? Um, usually we're choosing a chase vehicle that's appropriate to the scene. Um, so something that's very nondescript or something that's, that's appropriate. So in the case of the, uh, um, uh, the, the superhero movie I mentioned earlier, uh, that was part of a police motorcade. So we were in one of the, the period appropriate police cars that we set up as our, as our chase vehicle. Um, so we're actually in, you know, our, our head operator had to have on a little bit of wardrobe to make him look appropriate. Um, so we are we are definitely in the scene on occasion, um, but we I do everything we can to to make sure that that's not uh, not not distracting. Very very cool. All right, we've time for some on, uh, office hours questions here. We've got a good group, but your questions are always welcome. So let's dive into them. Mitch, what have we got? Here's one from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What are some of the notable projects that Plate Pros has contributed to? What can you talk about, David? Sure. Um, so the the demo reel uh, is is a lot of our um, higher profile projects over the years. We've done you know anything from uh, the Irishman, the Joker, uh, as I mentioned before, Creed to the Post. Um, so those are some of the larger larger. Um, projects we do a lot of tv and a lot of streaming so uh essentially the um uh over the course of let's call it the last since 2018 uh we've been involved with now hundreds moving on to thousands of productions so uh whether it's on the library side or the custom shoot side um so that allows us you know essentially if you've seen an actor driving in a car there's a better than even odds that what's outside the car came from us very, very cool. Next question. From Dave Kaufman in Vancouver, British Columbia. What's the wackiest rig you've seen to capture plates? Oh, gosh. Um, so, well, I can say the, the one of the wackiest rigs that we built, and I'll go back to my screen share. Sorry that I keep popping in and out of the screen share. Um, we were hired uh, by a Disney production to film from the open window of an MTA subway 
Um, so this is, this is that rig. Um, so we had the opportunity to, to take the window out of a subway car, which is actually uh, a very difficult thing to do. It turns out we, we had about eight different projects ask us to do this before finally the MTA gave us the permission. Um, and so this is a three camera array that's mounted inside uh, the subway car. Uh, and this is is to to create essentially the, the plates that you would see outside of a subway sequence. So in our demo reel, you'll see a bunch of kids dancing. Uh, these are the plates that were for that. So this was a special array specifically for this. Um, and, and the idea of being able to just barely nose these lenses uh, outside the subway car. The crazy thing that you don't realize uh, is the wall of the subway can be as close as two inches from the side of the of the of the car. So, and you're going anywhere from sixty to eighty miles an hour when you actually descend into the tunnels. You're going much faster than you think you are. Um, and I can say, once you have the window out, uh, it 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 becomes a a very different circumstance. So for us, this the safety component of it was really um, I don't know if wacky is the word, but it was definitely a an interesting uh, an interesting circumstance. And we only had about uh, I want to say we had 14 days total from when we got permission from the MTA to actually build the rig, get it to New York, uh, and then we installed it and and we were able to shoot the plate. We only had two hours with uh, with the the track. We had the train for longer, but we only had the track for two hours, so we had to get essentially one take in one direction, flip the rig to the other side, and get one take in the other direction. So it was a a particularly challenging um, set of circumstances. Uh, so yeah, I would say that's one of the wackier ones. So that's a never reach out and adjust the lens during that. Shoot. No, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tur Safety. Turned out to be much more terrifying than I expected it to be. Interesting. You know, the great thing about this industry is it puts you in such unusual places and it's just you'll never get these opportunities again. So this is really exciting to see how you manage to pull off what we enjoy so much in the content we watch every day. It's great. Let's go yeah. to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael. Uh, David, I love your sharp on camera image. What setup are you using? Um, thanks. Uh, this is actually so sticking with the Panasonic uh, uh, idea. So I'm on the S1H. Um, it's their full frame DSLR, uh, and that's that's running through a HDMI capture card into a, a Mac laptop. So um, fairly straightforward, but uh, it's one of my all time favorite cameras that, that Panasonic created. The S1H is absolutely fantastic. Uh, so. Appreciate very you much noticing. office hours approved, and we have very high standards around here for that. So great job. Let's go to the next question. And it's Talalic Lopez Waterman in Galisteo, New Mexico, asking, is the driver considered a DP or is there a DP and an operator? It's actually a really good question. Um, we we tend to arrive on set as what's considered a, a specialty operator, so a specialty rig operator. Um, there will usually be a DP um, for the show. Depending on on the, I mean, obviously there's a DP that's filming the entire content. Um, depending on whether we're on set with uh, uh, with a live production or if we're out shooting our own content. If it's our own content, our crew uh, are made up of of union local 600 members that have shooting experience, so they're able to act as their own cinematographer in that moment. They're making the choices about exposure. Um, the the main thing though is because we're shooting 360, there's not a lot of uh, I should say creative intent, we're filming everything. So it's a much more technical filming than creative filming. So the needs of the cinematographer to be thinking about framing, to be thinking about the, the specifics of uh, a camera movement 
all of that's kind of dictated by the circumstance and there is no frame because we're shooting 360. Um, so usually in most cases, we're we're just acting as our own uh, camera operator and making our own choices. Occasionally the cinematographer would be available or a second unit cinematographer would be available. Usually we'll just kind of show them the content after we do a run, they look at it and go, yeah, that looks great. And they move on to do their more important work. Uh, a big part of what we try to offer is to take this kind of technical shooting off the shoulder of the creatives. Um, the creatives have so much other things to worry about that, that a background plate shouldn't necessarily be that important um, in terms of their, their daily decision tree. So we like to prune that decision tree for them and just let them know, look, the plates are taken care of. Don't worry about it. You're going to have what you want on the day. Um, and it's really then on the, the shoot day on the LED stage, that's when the cinematographer is going to be re-engaged when they're shooting the foreground as blended with our background. The background itself, because it's so technical, um, for the most part, we're able to just kind of take care of it for them. A lot of the panelists want to weigh in on this, including Alex. Alex? Yeah, do you um, do you have any kind of live preview of the stitched image that you can that you can see? We do, um, especially with the uh, the library camera, the Obsidian. Uh, it does an internal, right, it so it, it has eight lenses, um, but because they're so wide, it actually has about 500% overlap lens to lens. So it's designed to be either a stereo 360 camera or a monoscopic 360 camera. Um, so what it allows is uh, essentially four of the eight lenses can create a full 360. Um, and so it does a procedural geometric stitch of four lenses and it outputs that in real time, uh, over basically either over HDMI that we can then send wirelessly, uh, or to an iPad that we can, you can then click and drag it around in real time. Um, so yeah, there is, and then there's uh, a few off the shelf, uh, systems that allow you to bring, like say that 17 camera array with that, we just had a, um, a MUX, which allows us to basically, similar to what we're looking at on Zoom, where we see all of us in little boxes, we can see each of those angles in a little box. Um, so we have real-time preview, but it's not really stitched at that point. There are some systems uh, that allow for real-time stitching as well, but for the most part, we we just go with kind of the the, the multi-frame preview. Do you, do you, Chris Fenwick. Do you, oh, do you have oh, a I'm lot sorry, of... Go ahead, Alex. Sorry, sorry about that. Do, do you no. have... Uh, a lot of revisions that you have to do, like does the, the, the client see it sometimes and go, oh, we need to go back and get this, this, and this. Does, does that happen very often? Thankfully, not that often. Um, it, usually, we we try and have a, a robust conversation in advance where we we try and lock down all of the variables. And having done you know uh, over a thousand of these kinds of productions over the last decade, we kind of know what the pitfalls are now. Of here's here's what right. to watch out for. Um, so we try and address all those in advance. You know, one of my favorite T-shirts that a VFX friend, a VFX supervisor friend of mine showed me is "Fix It in Pre." Um, yeah. We we very much believe in that. Um, so we try and, and nail down all the the logistics ahead of time so that we we nail it usually the first time out. Chris Fenwick, David, you mentioned a term just a moment ago. You called it uh, technical shooting. How often do you get to a point where a client will? Because what you're doing is very much wrapped up in the science and the geometry of what you're doing, how often do you have people ask you for things that you go, uh, that's not really the, the way it should work? And I would think that right. there's a point where the creativity has to kind of take a step aside because you've, at, you've been asked to do something that has to adhere to a certain amount of geometry. So the real question is, how do you deal with those requests mm -hmm. when people are asking you to do stuff that just scientifically or geometrically are wrong? 
Sure. Um, really good question. And it's, it, as with any business, um, there's a certain amount of politics and there's a certain amount of personality management, expectation management. That's a big part of this as well. Um, because we are, we're a small part of a much larger whole. We're just one small gear in this, in this clockwork that is a film. Um, but we're, we're, a we're an important part and we're a part that sometimes gets overlooked. And so it's, it's important for us to be able to advocate in the moment. And sometimes they're very urgent, heated conversations that we have to be able to manage. Uh, there's a lot of egos on set. There's a lot of the, you know, a lot of people have very strong opinions. Um, and so all of our crews are really adept and ha have a lot of years of onset experience to be able to manage those conversations and, 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 and handle the heat of that moment. Um, one example was actually uh, at the beginning of the demo reel, you saw uh, the train sequence for, uh, for the first Joker film. Uh, and with that one, we actually got the call to do MTA train plates, much like I showed you a second ago, they wanted to just put the cameras outside and, and shoot a plate outside the subway train. Um, and in the conversation with Larry Sher, the DP, we realized that um, because of the, it was a stunt sequence where it's, it's the moment when Joaquin Phoenix ends up shooting someone. I hope it's not a spoiler this many years down the road. Um, and they wanted, so it's a stunt sequence and they wanted to be able to very specifically cue moving into train stations, pulling out of train stations, having the train speed up, slow down, other trains pass by. So when a, when a train would pass by on the next track, it would interrupt the lighting in our car. So our train car's lights would flicker because that other train passed by. So this was very dynamic. And we realized that shooting an actual plate would mean that the actors would have to change their timing to match the timing of the plate. And so we talked them out of, we actually, I thought I was talking myself out of a job because I, I pitched the idea that you should do it as an animated still. This was kind of before the game engine uh, uh, kind of version of virtual production caught on. So I offered the idea of doing a multi-layered alpha channel still that we were able to create a false parallax by changing the speed that those stills were being presented to create the sense of three dimension when it wasn't actually there. But it meant that we could map all of that to a MIDI fader and actually give us a throttle to speed up and slow down the train um, and, and be able to pull into a station. So we had an infinite amount of tunnel. We had an infinite, infinite amount of stations. So now we could perform the environment in response to the actor's timing rather than asking the actor to perform according to the environment. Um, and so we thought we were in that moment that they, had, they came to us to shoot a traditional plate and we encouraged them to not do that. Um, and then ultimately they said, well, that sounds great. Can you do that? So we ended up actually building the system to be able to create that, that dynamic environment as well. Um, and so literally that came together uh, the morning of, so the, the, we had about four days of programming on set and then it was actually the morning of that we finally got it to work. So it was, a um, was, was a bit of a hair raising experience, but yeah, it is, it's common for us to have to have a, a negotiation and to have, uh, an educational opportunity to help people understand why you might do it one way, why you might do it another way. Um, and, and that's something that we actually take a lot of pride in something that we, we, we really try and, uh, engage early and often is, is being a collaborator, not just being a, a technician. Courtney. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that your cameras are networked, I guess, for start, stop control and maybe for time code. Do you actually store the footage on camera and cards that you have to have a AC come and change all the cards out every now and then, or, or is yeah. it sucked over the network uh, to a hard drive somewhere? 
Yeah. So uh, everything is recorded locally to the camera. Um, we find so th there is the ability to record over the network, but we find that uh, recording locally is much more robust, uh, especially on the outside of a vehicle where things are shaking around a lot. And, and there's, um, you know, could be weather instance, you know, there, there could be moisture in the air. Or otherwise, um, we tend to only rely on the cabled uh, uh, infrastructure for non-critical things. So in this case, you're right, camera control. Uh, the nice thing with the BGH is that actually there's an app that's able to adjust all of the settings of all of the cameras simultaneously. So we can, in the app, treat the entire array as if it was one camera. So we can change exposure in the middle of a shot. We can we can make a, a menu change and that will propagate to all the cameras. So that's been a huge benefit. Um, but in terms of the media, we like keeping it local just because it tends to be a little bit more robust and a little bit more um, fault tolerant in terms of, of, again, it's that high vibration environment can really can, can mess with things in ways you wouldn't expect. And what happens if you've had a bad card on one of the cameras? Does it spoil that shot completely or do you have any way of backing up? Um, it, it definitely can. Uh, and, and we've had, we've all had bad days. There's, you know, technology is going to fail us at, at times. Um, I will say, and this is one of the reasons that we've, we've really, uh, stuck with in terms of this kind of work, we started with the GH2 from Lumix. We moved on to the GH4, the GH5S, now the BGH1. Um, we've stuck with Lumix over the, the years because the, uh, the amount of failures we've had, I can count on one hand. Um, and this is over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of of filming in incredibly diverse climates from middle of Minnesota in the middle of winter, where literally LCD screens were freezing to the point that you couldn't see video anymore, but they still filmed perfectly um, to being, you know, in the middle of the desert, uh, you know, overseas and and having the, the worst heat you can imagine. And we've never had an issue. So we're very careful about the cameras that we choose and we, we put them through incredibly, uh, um, challenging tests to make sure that they're going to be robust and handle it. Um, but yeah, if there is an issue with one of the cameras, uh, that oftentimes means that the entire shot is a bust. So when you're dealing with 17 cameras, you're now 17 times more likely to have an issue. And so uh, our processes and the training that we we put our crews through, uh, we try and have a lot of redundancy and a lot of our processes seem really um uh, from a, they're not very technical. We're very methodical, but we also, we do things repeatedly and we have multiple people double checking each other's work to make sure that at the end of the day, we have everything that we want, but so mistakes the, sometimes do happen. So somebody verifies all the cards and all the takes before you leave the set. In other Absolutely. Words. Yeah. yeah. So we'll, we, we'll usually do playback after every run. Um, so we play back the content on every camera. Um, after every run, just to make sure. Uh, sometimes the ads find that to be a little tedious, but we 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 you know we let them know that it's 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 much easier for us to do a playback, spend two minutes doing playback now rather than coming back and trying to reset the entire location again uh, because something went wrong. So uh, yeah, so we're we're very careful about that, and then we have a a automated offload system that we've developed uh, that allows us to then manage the backing up of that footage. Uh, everything travels if it's a travel job. Uh, nothing is ever on the footage is always traveling by multiple means. So we're usually FedExing a drive as well as uh, hot cards coming back with, with the crew. Um, so the footage will never be on the same plane, things like that. So we, we follow a very robust backup strategy and, and media management is a, is a big part of our company and a big part of what we do. Next question. Roscoe Jones from Madison, Indiana asks, is there a need for GPS-based exposure control when transitioning into shade or tunnels? That's a good question. Um, 
So GPS, uh, we do have the ability to track GPS, which is sometimes useful, especially if you're looking at at being able to document speed and some of those things. Um, But relative to exposure, uh, when you're shooting an array, you actually want to avoid changing exposure as much as possible. Um, especially a lot of times people will ask, well, can we, if, if I'm, if I'm filming in one direction, can I have one exposure and filming a different uh, exposure in a different direction? Um, so let's say you're on the shadow side and the bright side of a building. Um, because we're shooting 360, you need all of the cameras to be shooting at the exact same exposure. That also means we can't use polarizers because a polarized filter has a different effect in every direction that it faces relative to the sun. Um, so we can't use polarizers. Everything has to be the same because it, at the end of the day, you're trying to create one cohesive light environment. Um, and so what we're looking for is a camera that has enough dynamic range to be able to reach into the shadows when we need that and to have enough highlight handling to be able to, to not adjust exposure. Um, but yes, going into a tunnel from a full daylight to, to going into a tunnel, uh, that's a real challenge. And so a lot of times we'll do two takes. We'll do a bright take and a dark take, and we can merge those takes in post. Or a lot of times that's an editorial consideration. Um, but if you think about it, if you were actually filming uh, a car scene, again, going back to Alex's uh, mention earlier of the process trailer, uh, you wouldn't necessarily, as as a DP, you're probably not going to be riding the exposure all that that much. You're going to be looking to light the foreground in a believable way. But when you drive under an overpass in nature, you would feel things get a little dark and then it'll get bright again. You want to actually feel that dynamism. And we want to try and keep that in the plate as well. So for the most part, we're able to kind of meet a, a, a nominal exposure and then let reality do what it normally would. Next question. From Talalic Lopez Waterman and Galisteo, New Mexico, could you talk about data storage? How much time can you shoot on a given shoot before needing to do a big storage media swap? Sure. Um, with the BGHs, uh, we're able to do about an hour and 45 minutes on uh, on a load. Um, so coming out of the 17-camera array, that full load would equate to approximately 3 terabytes of data. Um, so for us, an hour and a half of content, let's call it about three terabytes. Um, with the, uh, with the obsidian, we're doing about, I want to say it's about 30 minutes per eight terabyte load. Um, so it, it adds up really quickly. Uh, so we're usually traveling with, uh, with a SAN. Um, so we're doing a, a, a RAID array that travels with us, uh, and we're backing up, uh, to that. Actually, we're usually backing up to multiples of those. Um, and so when it comes to our library, we actually have a, uh, an SSD, uh, an eight uh, slot array for SSDs. And those SSDs then get shipped back to our Burbank post facility where it gets loaded onto our server. We have a petabyte of storage here um, that we're able to back everything up and then it all goes to LTO after that. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a tremendous, we, we like to make the, um, the analogy that it's like drinking from a fire hose um, because when you hit that big red button, when it's nine or 17 cameras rolling, uh, each of them shooting between four and six K uh, it's, it's a tremendous amount of data that's coming out of the system. So we try to be as, as uh, frugal as possible with, with what we're shooting, um, which sometimes that's the conversation we have to have with production where they're like, ah, just roll it and we'll, we'll figure it out later. And, and we try to let them know that, that that's a, that's usually a bad idea. <laughs> Next question. Mickey Makachur from Manila, Philippines. Do you capture aerial plates? And if so, what are the challenges and any interesting stories? Have you flown this? Sure. Um, so 
I, for, for the longest time, I was a 107 licensed drone pilot. Um, I've definitely done a lot of drone work. Uh, and some of those have been plates. Uh, we haven't done a lot of 360, although I know, uh, we have some, some, uh, uh partners that have. And actually the Obsidian, uh, which is the, the, the library camera that we use, uh, we have seen a couple of, of, uh, heavy lift, uh, 16 rotor drones have been able to, it's about a 35, 40 pound rig. Um, so it's a, it's a robust drone to be able to fly it. It has been done, um, but it's not something that we specialize in, not something that we do typically. Um, what we usually would do is actually film traditional aerial shots uh, that would match our driving plate. Uh, because a lot of times what you'll see, like a, a narrative scene, is usually that introduction shot where you're looking down at the car, going down the road, traveling through the trees, and then you cut into the car. So most of our drone work is kind of building that whole package of content to be able to build an entire scene. So a lot of times when we're out shooting plates, we'll be integrating with drone work uh, to be able to have uh, the full package of, of building a whole car scene. David C. Smith, what a fabulous hour this has been. Thank you so much for being here. Any last things that you haven't covered that you'd just like to make a note of before we dive into our close here? Oh, gosh. Um, I'd like to apologize because if anybody <laughs> if anybody in the audience, um, you know, doesn't like the, the magic to be spoiled a little bit, you know, sometimes when you peel back the curtain, um, I can say I can't watch TV or a movie the same way after getting into this that, you know, when I'm looking at a car scene now, I'm paying attention to what's happening outside the window, usually more than what's happening in the scene. So I apologize in advance. Um, I should mention as well that in addition to Plate Pros, uh, I'm also the, the co-founder of a an LED stage in New York called the Car Stage, so I'd encourage people to check that as well. Um, so we we kind of handle uh, soup to nuts, kind of the whole process. Um, and uh, I would encourage people to look at thecarstage.com as well. It, sound, it sounds like another uh, second hour. Uh, sure, sure. There you go. Actually, I, I would welcome it if you guys have the have the time and have the desire. I would we'll make it participate. We'll make it happen. Tomorrow, we are talking NDI. Our expert panel of industry professionals will be ready to answer all your questions about NDI. And we do have an August panel coming in. We have three or four people, including our old friend uh, Jeff Keithley and, and others who will be hearing. And so if you are confused about or just want information about NDI, tomorrow is your day. Thanks to all of the producers here who have asked questions and put them in. Our panelists, it's been a great crew of panelists to answer your questions uh, and of course the crew in the back end people unbelievable uh, the number of people who work on this and bring it to you every single day 365, 24-7, 365. Um, our tra traversal today, we've covered, if you had to go and get answers from all these people in life, it would have been 67,631 miles of traveling to accomplish that, uh, 108,000 kilometers. That's more than 535 million bananas laid end to end is how far we have traveled virtually today. We appreciate you being along with us for the ride We'll head into after hours. Thanks for watching. David, that was great. Minutes. Thanks, guys. Really well done. Let us know when you're in New York. We'll we'll, we'll find uh, if you're in in there for chunks of time. We'll see if we can sure. find a day we can have you give us a little bit of a tour. Oh, that'd be great. We'd love it. Yeah, that'd be really fun. Tremendous. And then, Alex, great to reconnect after so many years. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was like, I, I saw the name and I was like, I've seen that name before. And then I saw you and I, I couldn't put it together until you said the, sure. part, the, 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 the car. And then I was like, oh, right. And all right. of it came back. And oh, that's great. And uh, yeah, that was, that was a fun day.
No, and uh, I have to commend the 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 your behind the scenes staff in terms of of getting us in and and you know making sure that all the tech checks were were on point and you know the I would expect nothing less, but you guys have an absolutely stellar team. I don't need to tell you that, but it should it should be said. That's amazing. Yeah, no, it's an incredible team that we've collected here. So we wholeheartedly yeah. agree. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. All right, thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks. All. all right, see you later.